This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. All righty. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon, good afternoon, good afternoon. It's good to see you all. I want to thank you for coming out here. We're getting really, really close to Pesach. You cannot hear me? Can you hear me? Good? Okay. Uh, we're getting really close to Pesach, so I really appreciate you taking your time out to be here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to thank the amazing staff over at Yeshua Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for making this beautiful lunch and learn. Obviously, they're also busy making Pesach, so a lot of effort was put in here. And I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app, it's a website. It's got more brilliant Jewish and Torah knowledge than you could possibly ever listen to. But try it out. Say, oh yeah, Rabbi, watch me. I'll watch it all in double speed. And let me see, maybe I'll finish all their content. Give it a shot. Prove me wrong. Be my guest. But we thank the amazing people over at Torah Anytime, which is an app and a website, and it's filled with amazing Torah content. Now, last week, we were in the middle of discussing the Seder. And this week, we're going to continue. Last week, we left off talking about the Karpas. Which brings us to this year, this week, where we're going to talk about yachatz. What is yachatz? I think we may have met, did we talk about that last week at all? No. No? Good. Okay, fine. Yachatz, even though we didn't talk about it last week, is when we break the middle matzah. We mentioned it briefly, but we did, did we talk about it in length? The week before. The week before. Yes, that's true. That's right. The week before, we did talk about it when it came to financial stability. Yachatz and financial stability. Alrighty, but in any case, uh, this week we're going to talk about it from a different approach. Yachatz, we break the middle matzah, and we hide the bigger half for a later date. What is the message? What's going on over there? So I want to share with you an idea from the Chassam Sofer. Okay, Chassam Sofer was one of the great rabbis. He lived in a city that is now known as Bratislava. It was then the thing called Pressburg. Now it's known as Bratislava. And little fun fact about the Chassam Sofer. His tomb is one of the funkiest, coolest tombs of a rabbi I've ever seen. Now you say, Rabbi, what's so cool about a rabbi's grave? Go, go there and see it. They build this whole, it's, this, it's a really wild thing. They built like, you walk down this thing and there's these two big black granite slabs and you walk in between them and you go downstairs it's a whole thing. They built it in special ways that Kohanim should be able to go, even though it's in a cemetery. It's a wild thing. If you want to just get a picture for it, just Google Hassam Sofer Grave. And you'll, you'll see, it is definitely more interesting than any other grave of a rabbi that I know of. Only second to the Marasa Machpelah, the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron, which is pretty cool too, built by Herod himself. So, okay, in any case, well, not with his own hands, you get it, but I'm saying like with his slaves. Okay, now, the Chassam Sofer has a piece on Yachatz. He says, what is the message of Yachatz? Well, you're going to have to wait until I make a bracha on this Diet Coke Zero. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Malach Olam Shakol Varam. See what I did over there? I teased you with the question, which is like the smaller half. And then I said, you have to wait for the later, for the answer, until after my bracha. That's like, yachat. You get the little, little, little half now, bigger half later. Okay. Says the Chassam Sofer. Pesach is the night when we celebrate the redemption. Pesach is the night when we celebrate the Geula, the redemption from Egypt. Which is obviously a very, very special moment. However, we also know that the 
redemption from Egypt is not the end goal. That was a redemption that was followed by exile. The redemption from Egypt was followed by exile not once, not twice, not even thrice, but rather four times. There were four exiles subsequent to our exile from in, in, in Egypt, after our redemption from Egypt. Not all of them were specifically involving us moving around, but the four Gullios, the Dalit Gullios, are Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, and the Romans. Four different nations that came and subjugated us after we got out of Egypt. As a matter of fact, Kabbalistically, Kabbalistically, the exile in Egypt contained elements of all the things we would face later in all our future uh, exile, so we would have the ability to get out of them. Just like our forefathers got out of the first one, there would be sort of in our DNA the ability to escape the various elements that we were going to see in all the other exiles. So the, the Egyptian exile, the Egyptian slavery is seen as a prototype for all four of the exiles we were going to face. But obviously, every Jew is awaiting the, the Messiah to come and give us a final redemption. And the reason why we call it the final redemption is because there will not be any more exile after that. And not only that, but the miracles of that exile will far outweigh the miracles of the Egyptian exile. Tells us the prophet, Yermiah, Jeremiah, chapter 16, verse 14, Perak Tes Zion, Pasuk Yudalid, Therefore, days are coming, prophesizes the prophet in the name of the Lord. And they will no longer say, by the life of God that brought his people up out of the land of Egypt. But rather, by the life of God who lifted the Jewish people out of the northern lands, and all the other lands that God sent them to. Think about where Jews are now. When Messiah comes, the redemption of Egypt was getting the Jews out of one country, Egypt. And mind you, even in that exile, many Jews didn't want to leave. Think about where the Jews are going to be coming from right now when the Messiah comes. If the Messiah were to come tomorrow, how many different passports would they be stamping at Ben-Gurion Airport? Think about it. There are Jews all over the world in over 150 countries. And the miracles it will take to get us all here will be so wild and so incredible that no longer will say, oh, that is the God, He redeemed His people from Egypt. Remember those stories, the great miracles. Those miracles will pale in comparison. The greatness of that redemption will pale in comparison to the final redemption. I believe with a complete faith in the coming of the Mashiach. Even though He tarries, Every day I wait for Him to come. We break the middle, mitzv- the middle matzah in half. The smaller one is here at the table. That's the one we're going to have while we tell over the Magid story. 
Because it represents that the story that we're going to tell over at the Haggadah is the story of the smaller redemption. The bigger half is hidden away. It's tzafun. It's hidden away. And we're going to eat it at a part of the at a part of the Seder called Safun, the hidden part. And that's the bigger half. That's the greater miracles. That's the ones that we're waiting for. And that's the ones we have the energy to wait for because every time we sit down at a Seder, we remind ourselves of how great God is because of what He did for us, which then gives us the confidence that He will do for us again. I was, you think about Jewish history. And again, this is, this is the Meshach the, Chachma, the, uh, the says this over. Many, many great commentators say that the greatest miracle of, of the Jewish people is not Egypt. It's that we're still here. How are we still here? Sociologists tell you that once you're detached from your homeland, it takes about four generations until you lose your identity. Right? So you come over, your great-great-grandparents come over from Sicily, right? And they don't even speak any English, right? They sit in their apartments in the Lower East Side. There's a lot of, there was a little Italy right next to the Jewish, you know, Lower East Side. And there's little Italy over there. And the grandparents, whatever, the, you know, the, the, the people came over. Salvatore, Fatora, you know, and he's sitting with his wife and she's making the best cannelloni and it's amazing, right? And then there's the kids. And the kids, they feel embarrassed of their parents who speak Italian only, or when they barely speak English, it's with a very, very thick accent. The kids are kind of embarrassed of their parents. What are you talking about? I'm an American. What do you mean? Whatever, you know? And then there's the grandchild, and the grandchild is like, he already knows he's American because he grew up in America, and he's, he doesn't have any of that discomfort, but he sees his grandparents, and his grandparents are busy making cannelloni and the best sauce and the, all the great foods in the kitchen, and he's kind of curious. Tell me, you know, Grandpa, what was life like back in Sicily? <laughs> in Sicily, I can't tell you. It's our secret. Whatever, you know, okay, fine. La cosa nostra. Okay. <laughs> but ask your grandmother. She can talk. She can talk. And he, you know, so the grandkid is kind of interested because he's got his grandparents around. And then by the time the great-grandchildren are around, there's nobody speaking Italian, right? There's nobody making cannelloni, right? There's, 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 I mean, maybe, maybe they're making pizza now, you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, fine, you know, whatever. They have Italian Heritage Day. They march on down Fifth Avenue with some flags. They're done. Give it another generation. They're, they're literally done. You know what I'm saying? At this point, the only way you really know they're Italian is because their last name, you know, was ends with an O, you know, Fratello, or whatever, you know, whatever it is. They don't, there's nothing left. There's nothing left. Sociologists tell us, after four generations, it's gone. As a matter of fact, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to skip way out of proportion over here. Way out of, not proportion, way out of, out of step. There are the four children in the Haggadah. Right? We say there are four children in the Haggadah. There's the Chacham, there's the Rasha, there's the Tom, and there's the Sheina Yodeli Shol. There's the wise man, there's the evil son, there's the simple son, and there's the one who doesn't even know how to ask. And the sages, some of the commentary says, this is what happens. You have the people who come over, they're connected to the Torah, they come over from the old country, and they're still putting on Tefillin and Shabbos and all that. 
And then that's the first generation. The second generation is the evil one who sees, oh, my parents are being held up by their old superstitious beliefs. Oh, I don't believe in this whole thing. And they walk away from it. They see their father losing jobs for keeping Shabbos. They see, you know, whatever, whatever it is, they can't get... So they, they walk away from it. And the, grand, the next one, so that's the Russia, the evil one, who kicks out all of his, the, the traditions of the people who came over from the old country. And then the next one is the simple one. He just he's walking around saying, "What's going on? I don't know." Like I see my grandfather; he does this. I see my grandma; she makes rugelach, whatever. They're really good. What are they? Tell me about it. It's our secret. No, it's not our secret. Okay, fine. And then there's the there's, there's the fourth one who doesn't even know how to ask. Then there's really not much continuity in the Jewish people. I challenge you to find, go find me ten Jews. Go find me ten Jews that can say there was no Judaism in my family for five generations. Meaning, when I say Judaism, I mean no Torah practice. I challenge you, go find me. Five Jews. I'm like, Abraham, I'm bargaining down. I started with ten. Now I'm going to five. (laughs) Go find me five Jews who will tell you that I am a proud Jew. I'm involved in some sort of Jewish life. And for five generations before me, there was no Shabbos, there was no kosher, there was no Torah, there was no... Find me that. I challenge you. You won't find it. So how are we even here? How are the Jewish people still here? And one of the reasons why we're still here is because we sat down at our seders, and even though the persecution, I mean, forget about right now, right now even in America, we barely face persecution. And people are saying to me all the time, Rabbi, what's going on with all this anti-Semitism? I'm like, did you ever open a history book? Anti-Semitism was our middle name for thousands of years. We got lucky, not lucky, blessed, we were blessed by God that after the Holocaust, Hashem said, you're going to see, you'll have a generation where you'll, it won't be so bad. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a break, so to speak. Read history. Go read the history of Jews in Poland for a thousand years. Go read the history of Jews in Germany. Go read the history of Jews in France. Go read the history of Jews everywhere. Anti-Semitism, unfortunately, is the norm... Not the exception. Halacha Esav Sone es Yaakov. It is a law that Esau hates Jacob. How did we stick with the program? How do we still have people here? Everybody who's here right now, do you know what kind of sacrifice people made in order for you? You got here. Baruch Hashem. Thank God. Think about all the ancestors that you had who, who gave up comfort, faced persecution were the victims of pogroms and expulsions and stayed the course. How do they do that? Because every Pesach, when we sit down and tell our story, we're not just telling a story about the past. We're not just telling a story that Hashem took us out. But it's that Hashem who took us out will take us out. It's the yachatz. We break the middle matzah. We keep the smaller half on the table. And we tell the story of how Hashem took us out. But the message is, there's tzafun. There's what's missing. There's what's hidden. There's the afikomen. You just wait until the dessert. When God will take us out and the miracles will be far greater. And that's what keeps us going. Which, by the way, is such an important reason that unfortunately I see so many satyrs that it ends up becoming this whole like 
Let's talk about all the people in the world suffering. Let's talk about African genocide, which is terrible. African genocide is terrible. Don't get me wrong. When I was voting on should there be African genocide or not, I voted absolutely not. I'm kidding. There's no vote. <laughs> they don't put this. <laughs> Everyone's looking back. I don't remember voting on that. Yeah, it's not on the ballot in America. These things are terrible. African genocide is terrible. It doesn't belong at your Seder. It doesn't belong at your Seder. You can have 364 days a year that you can talk about all the terrible things in the world. If you want to keep your people your people, then focus on your people when it's your people's time to discuss what we've been through and what we hope to get to. You can discuss all the problems in the world, but when it's your kid's PTA and you're talking to the teacher, you don't say, okay, teacher, let's talk about... So I heard there's issues going on right now in Washington State with uh, school strikes. Let's talk about the educational challenges in Washington State. Teacher's like, no, no, your son, he's having trouble in my class. You're like, yeah, I know. You're only going to talk about my son? Really? Come on. Like, let's talk about the broader picture of educational challenges. I heard that in some countries, in, in, in Southeast Asia, kids can't even go to school past third grade. And the teacher's like, no, no, excuse me. Your son's having trouble in my class. He's coming in in the morning and he's not prepared. You're like, I know, I know, but it's so myopic to just talk about my son. Let's talk about the world's broader educational challenges. That would be absurd. Imagine you're sitting down with your wife for your anniversary dinner. You say, you know what? Let's talk for a moment about our neighbors. The Goldbergs. Ah, that family. They love each other so much. They're such a special husband and wife. Do you see the way they love each other? She's like, excuse me? It's our anniversary dinner. You're like, I know, but we're not going to be so selfish to just sit and talk about us. Let's talk about the Goldberg's love and the Schwartz's love. I don't think their love is as strong as ours. What do you say? What do you give the Schwartz's? What do you give the Goldberg's? And she's like, wait, 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 wait. This is our anniversary. Can we talk about us? I, I could. I could. But I'd feel really uncomfortable if we spent the whole time just focusing on us. As if the rest of the world has no romantic issues and challenges and problems and, 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 and successes. It's out of place. The Seder is the time to talk about us. It's not the time to talk about African genocide or slavery in Southeast Asia or how they built the Burj in Dubai, which, by the way, was total slavery. Modern-day slavery is an absolute reality. Horrific. Now is not the time to talk about it. Yachatz. We're going to talk about our redemption. That's going to be the smaller half. And we're going to remember the greater half is going to be the greater redemption coming soon. All righty? When's the, when's the great redemption coming? Coming soon to a home near you. Alrighty. Alrighty, ladies and gentlemen, that is Yachatz. Let's move right along to Magid. Magid. We start off with Halach Ma'anya. Halach Ma'anya diachalu avasana ba'ar de Mitzrayim. This is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Whoever is hungry, come and eat. Whoever is needy, come and join our Pesach experience. There are many people today in the world that are not hungry, but they're needy. As the Prophet says, Behold, there are days coming, says the Lord, and I will send a famine into the land. Not a 
not a hunger for bread, nor a thirst for water, but to hear the word of the Lord. I'll tell you something fascinating going on right now in the world of Jewish outreach. The world of Jewish outreach, you know, it goes through ebbs and flows. The 70s, for example, was a time of great search for truth and meaning, people feeling like maybe the the messages they were given in the past weren't really being 100% truthful, the hippie movement, the anti-war protests. People were looking for truths that were outside of their normal things they were brought up with. And that led to an enormous amount of people becoming Torah-involved. It was called the Great Teshuvah Movement. The great movement of coming back to God. The word Teshuvah means to return, to return to God. People were really, really searching. People were hitchhiking all over the world, searching for meaning. And, and then there came a long time where it wasn't so much. I remember, I, I moved here in 2005. And I remember talking to young professionals, college students. They weren't so receptive they were incredibly focused on their careers, on their jobs, that, that they were, on, on, on you know, their relationships with each other. It was, it, there, there was, it was less of a receptive time. Today is once again entering a new era. It's a receptive time. People are thirsty for the word of Hashem. People are thirsty for meaning. People are thirsty for real purpose. We live in such an upside-down world right now. The world is so divided, so chaotic, so acidic. The pH level of the world right now is like three. It's so acidic. And people are just searching. Give me something meaningful. Give me something spiritual. So we say, whoever is hungry, if you're physically hungry, come and eat with us. We'll bring you, we have a meal. If you're needy, you're not hungry. You're needy, come and join our Pesach experience. If what you need is meaning and purpose, come and join our Pesach experience. This year we are here, the next year in the land of Israel. This year we are slaves, next year we should be free. So we say, this is the bread of affliction, and we show, we point to the matzah, which of course we know represents both affliction and freedom. It represents affliction because when we were slaves, that's what they used to serve us as bread. You have slaves, you know, you're not serving them you know, nice white bread, you're not serving them brioche. I don't know if you guys know this, Mary Antoinette never said let them eat cake. That's not what she said. Did you know that? She said let them eat brioche. Brioche, of course, is a fat, rich bread, traditionally made with butter, right? Which, again, it's almost, it would have been like cake for anybody living back then. You don't serve your servants brioche. You don't say, let my, let my slaves eat brioche. You give them crackers, you give them matzah, right? <laughs> of course, if they were seeing the prices of today's matzah, they'd be like, let them eat cake. <laughs> let them eat brioche. <laughs> but in any case, it does represent their slavery, because as the Jews were slaves, they were being fed matzah, but it also represents their freedom, because that's what we ate when we got out. This is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate while they were slaves for so many years. This flat, hard, almost indigestible bread. Which again, is another reason you would serve it to your slaves. Because it takes so long to digest. They feel like there's something in their stomach. They're not, something rattling around in their stomach for hours and hours and hours. So, this is the bread of affliction. What does that have to do with this whole thing where we, we invite people in? If you want to start off with a proclamation of inviting people in, just say, hey, 
We're about to start our Pesach Seder journey. If you're hungry, by the way, it's funny that we invite people. If you're, if you're hungry, come and eat. Because like, we just finished the carpas. We finished the first. We finished the first cup of wine. We finished the carpas. There's no food for another couple of hours. But anyway, we did, if you want to invite people, great. But what's the whole? We're starting off with the bread of affliction. So at one time, when I was trying to figure this out, I googled the world, the words "person who grew up poor." And I was hoping to see a story that a person grew up very poor and then he made it rich and he gave a lot of charity. But what I actually found, and again, there was, I'm sure there's a million, you know, if you Google anything, you get four billion hits in 38 seconds, in 38 tenths of a second, whatever it is. But the first thing that came up was, it was a, a, uh, an article about a man who grew up dirt poor in Appalachia. And there were many times where he didn't have food and again, like it's, it's hard for us to imagine, but even today in America, people have food insecurity. And he writes, as a man who grew up extremely poor, I measure my success by this. And he's pointing, behind him he has a pantry. And the pantry is just filled with shelves and shelves and shelves of cereals and, you know, canned tuna fish and peanut butter and all, you know, like a pantry. But it's like, we're talking about a huge, huge pantry filled with so much food. He grew up starving. The most important thing for him is to be able to know that he's going to give his kids as much food as they want. We ate the bread of affliction. We know what it's like to be hungry. And that's why we invite people in. Because of the experiences that we went through. Had we never known slavery, we would not have been able to have the empathy that we do as Jews. Because we know what it feels like to be alone in a disaster, that's why when there's a disaster anywhere in the world, the Jews are the first to show up on the scene with hospitals and tents and and, and medical supplies. Because we've eaten, eaten the bread of affliction so many times, that's why we're able to say, whoever's hungry, come and eat. Whoever's needy, come and join my Pesach. That's why the Jewish people are the most generous ethnic group in the world. We're about to launch in the story and there's going to be descriptions of horrible deprivation the Jewish people went through. Great pain and suffering. Before we get started, let's remember, and again, it's always hard to understand why this could happen when it's happening. But when you look back, you say, you know what? Our nation was born out of a crucible of great challenge, hunger, hardship, pain, and suffering. And maybe that's why our nation is the nation that looks to always alleviate hunger, pain, and hardship. This is what we went through, and this is who we've become. The people who are ready to throw open our doors and say, whoever's hungry, come and eat. Whoever's needy, come and join me in Pesach. Now, do we really mean it? Imagine one year on Pesach, you're sitting at the Seder, and you say, You don't have to use that tune, you can use other tunes. You say, Whoever's hungry, come and eat. There's a knock at the door, and there's 20 people outside. I didn't, uh, I'll tell you what, my, my neighbors, they have a lot, we just, we just made food for like, Nine, you know, there's twenty of you. I don't, I don't know, you know. The rabbi, he his wife always makes so much extra food. 
They just live a few doors down. Are we, are we seriously inviting people in? Is that what we really mean? Someone once came to Rev. Moshe Feinstein, who was the greatest, possibly the greatest American halachist. Right? He specifically, exclusively, not exclusively, he also wrote on the Torah, the Darash Moshe, but he wrote extensively on a lot of contemporary halachic issues, and he was the first to address many of them. And He wrote this massive compendium called the Igros Moshe, eight volumes of brilliant expositions, and every single question they ask him, he literally starts with the verses, and the Mishnah, and the Gemara, and the Halacha, he goes through everything, and he gives you a very comprehensive answer. So, someone once came to Moshe Feinstein and asked him a halachic question. And he said, the halacha is X. And this man says to Rav Moshe, but doesn't it say in the Prima Gadim exactly the opposite? Now the Prima Gadim, his name is Rav Yosef ben Meir Teumim. He lived in the mid-1700s, 17, 17 from 1727 to 1792. He was born in Galicia, in Lvov, which is today western Ukraine. He ended up being a rabbi in Berlin. And then he moved to his rabbi in Frankfurt, and he died in Frankfurt, and he's buried there. So he's one of the primary commentators on the Shulchan Aruch, the Jewish code of law. So he asked Rav Moshe this question, and Rav Moshe says the answer is X, and he says, but doesn't the Prima Gadim say Y? And Rav Moshe says, yep, that's true, the Prima Gadim does say Y, but that's what you, you should do what I said, I said X. The man says, but uh, there's a clear Prima Gadim that doesn't agree with what you said. Rav Moshe says, I understand. I'm telling you, you asked me what the halacha is, I'm telling you, you should do X. So the man walks away, and he comes back a little while later, toting a large volume of the Shulchan Aruch, and he busts it out, and he shows it to Rav Moshe Feinstein. He says, look, look, it says right over here, the Prima Gundam says exactly the opposite of what you said. Rav Moshe Feinstein looked at this man, he says, I know. I learned that Prima Gaudim 296 times. But you should do like I told you. <laughs> There's so many different things we can unpack about this. First of all, when you ask a halachic authority, respect what he answers. And especially if you've told him, I've, you should never say to him, but this and this is what it says. You can ask, I want to understand what the rabbi is saying, because I remember learning in the Prima Gaudim Y, and the rabbi is saying X, can the rabbi explain? And he can either say, yes, I have time for it, or I don't have time for it right now. You asked me this question, you know, 30 seconds before, you know, I got to go to my child's wedding, or whatever it is, so I, I can't, I don't have the time for it right now, but we can talk about it later. That's one thing, but, but the, here's the, the idea. I learned that Prima Gaudim 296 times. Where does Rav Moshe Feinstein have time to learn anything 296 times? He's the man who's dealing with the weight of all the Jewish people's questions. He's busy writing out. Thousands churning out. Again, there are certain rabbis, you ask them a question, they answer you yes or no. Rav Moshe Feinstein, if you read, it's, it's so beautiful to read his responsa. Every response that he gives, he starts off with a nice pleasantry to the person asking the question, and then he goes into the whole sugya, the whole topic in depth, giving you the full 
background, the verses, the Mishnah, the Gemara, the early commentators, the later commentators, the Shulchan Aruch, the, all the various... He goes into it in such beautiful depth. Where does he have time to learn something? 296 times. The answer is it all depends on which world you live. If you live, if you live in the physical world... You got physical limitations. If you live in the spiritual world, the spiritual world is infinite and there are no limitations. What do I mean by this? We all choose to live in the worlds we want to live in. The world of spirituality is a world that we call Ein Sof. There's no, it's an infinite world. In the tabernacle, and in the temple, in the Mishkan, in the Beis Hamikdash, there's a rule that's called the Aron did not take up any space. The Aron is the, the vessel that held the luchos, that held the tablets and the Torah in it. It didn't take up any space. What does that mean? That means if you were to go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, which you should not go, because the only person who's supposed to go in there is the high priest on Yom Kippur, and when the high priest goes in on Yom Kippur, he goes in with ladles of incense. But if he were to have strapped a little measuring tape onto his belt, and when he gets into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, he pulls out the measuring tapes and he puts it out across, across the floor, and he measures the space from the wall to the Aron, it would be ten amos. And then he measures the other one from the wall unto the Aron, it would be ten amos. The problem is, the Aron itself was one and a half Amos wide. And the room was only 20 Amos wide. Now, based on that, if you're, if you're good with the math, each side should have only been able to measure 9.25 Amos. 9.25 from here, 9.25 in here, you're left with one and a half in the middle. Miraculously, the Aron took up no space. Why did Hashem make that miracle specifically about that vessel? Because Hashem is telling you, when you live in the world of spirituality, when you live in the world of Torah, there's no constraints of time and space. You're living on a different plane. If you live in the, if you live in the world of physicality, you made Seder night dinner for nine. You had eight people, or maybe you made a little extra. And then 20 people show up at your door. You're like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I know, I just said, whoever's hungry, come and eat. But I don't really have any more food. Go to the rabbi's house. He can help you. Maybe he'll split you up into different people's houses. When you live in a world of, of no boundaries, you live in a world of spirituality, 20 people come in, you say, Great! Come on in! Alright, let's go. We're going to figure this out. We'll put people over here. Let me run out and get some extra wine. Let me run out and get some extra... You live in a spiritual world. There's no, there's no boundaries. Just like there was no boundaries on the night of Pesach when God took us out of Egypt and the whole world miraculously turned on its head and the most powerful kingdom and civilization in the world fell onto its knees begging the Jewish people to leave. Impossibilities. So too, if you live in the world of spirituality, whoever, if, if I say whoever is hungry, come and eat. If there's 20 people at my door, I'll make it happen. That's the mindset of Geula, of redemption. 
I'm redeemed from having to deal with limitations. I'm redeemed from all that I can. But I can't. How am I going to feed all these people? Redeem yourself. Break free. Next. At the end of Halach Ma'anya, we say, this year we're here, next year in Yerushalayim, this year we're, we're, we're servants, next year free. How did, how did next year in Yerushalayim... How did, how do we Jews manage to get next year in Jerusalem into everything? How did this get here? The Gemara says in Tractate Bava Basra, page 10a, it has been taught, Rabbi Yehuda said, Great great is charity that it brings the redemption near. Shenemar, as it says in Isaiah 56, 1. Kayamar Hashem, so says Hashem, Shimru Mishpat Vasut Tzedakah, keep judgment and do Tzedakah, ki krova Yeshuasi Lavov, it's Kasili Higalos. For my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Once we open up our homes so magnanimously to everybody and anybody, we can be assured that the Messiah and the redemption is coming closer. Next, we remove the Ka'ara, the Seder plate from the table. And now the children start asking Manishtana. The reason we remove the kara from the Seder table is so that the children should ask questions. We engineer a sense of curiosity, like, why did you suddenly remove, take the Seder plate off the table? Oh, I'm glad you asked. You have any other questions? Oh, yeah. Manishtana, Laila, Zavika, Laila, Zavika, Okay. <laughs> now, why do we ask all these questions? Remembering that also most of those things haven't even happened yet. You ask, why do we eat matzah? You didn't eat matzah yet. Why do we eat mar? You didn't eat mar yet. Why do we dip twice? You didn't dip twice yet. <laughs> Not only that, the Gemara says that... It's talking about the order of the Seder, and it says here the, the son asks the questions. And what happens if your child is too... Let's say you only have a one-year-old, and he's not old enough to ask Manishtana yet. Then you ask yourself. You have your wife ask you. There should always be, and even if you're by yourself, you ask the Manishtana to yourself, and you answer it to yourself. Why? What's the idea? The Seder night is designed around Q&A. It's, we, we even engineer Q&A. Many years ago, I went to China. Matter of fact, I think it was 2008, I want to say. So it's maybe 2000 and... Yeah, maybe 2007. 2007. I went to China. Now remember, China in 2007 and China in 2023, different world. The amount of repression going on in China right now under Xi Jinping, right? It is so much more of an authoritarian state. It's, it's shocking. Now, when I went to China, it was, it was a beautiful country. Uh, there was very little crime. So much, I'll tell you a crazy story. I felt very safe. <laughs> it's weird. I wouldn't feel safe walking down many parts of Chicago, L.A., Manhattan. I wouldn't feel safe. I felt very safe walking the streets of Moscow. I felt very safe walking the streets of Shanghai. Right? I'm just telling you straight up. Because those countries, they don't treat crime lightly. 
We have parts of our country right now where you can attack somebody in the street of Manhattan, literally attack, assault somebody, they'll bring you down to the station, they'll book you, and they'll let you out. You can attack somebody again, what do they do? They bring you down to the station, they book you, and then they let you out. And then you can attack somebody again. And what do they do? They bring you down to the station, they book you, and they let you out. How do I know this is true? Because this has happened. There are many habitual violent offenders in New York City. And every their, their rap sheets, we take the amount of pages it takes to write one of these congressional budgets, like 7,000 page budgets. Here's the budget for fiscal year 2024. You know, it's like... It's like, literally, there's 7,000 pages, and they give it to you the night before, and you're supposed to vote on it the next morning, right? That's how, that's how budgets get passed in America today. There are criminals in New York City who have rap sheets that are 7,000 pages long. And they're booked for every crime. Violent offenses, attacking people, robbing, stealing, and they're just let out. So I, wouldn't feel, I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe today. I don't... I don't, I don't I have no interest in going to any of these cities, by the way. Like, really. Uh, will I go to Manhattan under duress? Yes. But it's not like, it's not like it's, there's nothing exciting to me about going to these cities. But I felt very safe in Moscow, in Shanghai. As a matter of fact, listen to this crazy story. When I was in Shanghai, I didn't realize there was, there was, there was, I was walking down this area, there's a lot of people there. At one point, I had a $100 bill in my pocket. Now, usually when I go to these countries, I'm, all countries, when I travel, I generally I have a special wallet that I keep under my shirt, with like, you know, around my neck. It's like a whole, you know, because you've got to be careful for pickpockets. You know, certain countries are known more than others. Rome, for example, is terrible pickpocketing going on over there. There are different cities where you go to. So I, I was in Shanghai. I had a $100 bill sticking halfway out of my pocket. And I was stopped in a crowd. I mean, literally, it was literally this little $100 bill was screaming, take me, somebody, just take me, just grab me. All you got to do, come, think about it, the, the dollar, was, the, the bill was halfway out. All you got to do is just like pull slightly. And I was, and I get a tap on my shoulder. It's an older guy, doesn't speak a word of English. He's like, huh, huh. I'm like, what, what? He's like, no, no, no. Huh? He's trying to point to my pocket, but I keep turning to see what he's pointing to. Anyway, eventually he's like, and I look, and there's a $100 bill sticking. So that, that's how much. So, in any case, I was there and I had a great time. I really had a very enjoyable time in China. But I'm always curious about the human element. I love talking to people. I love learning their stories. I love hearing about their lives. I, I could sit and talk to people for hours anywhere. I mean, you know, Baruch Hashem, like that's something I just, I just take a lot of interest in human beings. When I was in China, it was fascinating. So I'll talk to people, and we could talk about almost anything. The minute I say, so like, how do you feel about your life under a communist regime? They say, what? How do you feel, <laughs> how do you feel about your life under a communist regime? They're like, I, I don't understand you. And so, of course, <laughs> me being the stupid American tourist, I'm like, how do you feel about your life. You're not free over here. Like, I don't understand what you mean. And I repeat myself like seven times so finally I realized, like, of course they understand me. They just, they can't talk about these things. You could have a nice life. And when I was in China, I saw more Ferraris and Lamborghinis and crazy, beautiful cars. There's this one stretch in, in Shanghai called the Bund. It was where all the, uh, the different... 
banks and national, you know, uh, international trading houses used to set up their warehouses and their and their and their offices. Gorgeous, beautiful. About it, you know, walking down, it's like walking down Champs Elysees. You know, Gucci and Prada and these crazy, you know, beautiful, beautiful buildings, beautiful restaurants, beautiful. Everything's gorgeous there, and people are living a very high level. And of course, I recognize that that's the elite part of China. And the rest of them are living, you know, on a dollar a day. But the bottom line is, as soon as you start talking to them about what their life is really all about, they, they can't talk. They're not allowed to ask questions. The greatest freedom that you should have is the freedom to understand your world. And in order to understand your world, you have to ask questions. Now in China, the jailer so to speak, who's not allowing the question to be asked, is the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. In America, who's the biggest jailer? Who's the jailer preventing us from asking questions? What? The government. The government. So you could say, right, there's definitely today, if you ask certain questions openly on certain social media platforms, you'll be deplatformed, you'll be misinformation, you'll be this. We are our biggest jailers. The questions that we want to ask ourselves about our life. Why am I in this rut? Why am I still doing something that I for so long have, don't want to do? For decades! Why am I still here? What am I doing about it? Those questions, we don't want those questions. So we put ourselves in a jail where our most innermost expression is not allowed to be heard. We turn up the music. We distract ourselves. We pull out our phone and we look at something, just something. We get in our cars, turn on the music. People have shower uh, radios, right? Because God forbid you should spend 10 minutes in the shower thinking to yourself about your own life. No, 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 that could be dangerous. Let's get some music going. We have a plethora of Entertainment options, and there's podcasts, and there's Spotify music, and there's this, and there's that. Anything, but you can scroll through endless pictures and Instagram or TikToks or whatever. Just don't think about who you are and what you're about. And by the way, that's one of the beauties of Shabbos. On Shabbos, you, the music stops. You got to come back to who you are. Shabbos means to return, to return to yourself. The music turns off and you get to ask yourself, wait, who am I? What am I? Why am I? Where am I? The big questions. When I was in elementary school, we were taught the who, the, 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 the who what, when, where, why. Right? Anytime you approach a subject, you have to write about who, what, when, where, why. Who am I? What am I? When am I going to? Where am I? Why am I? These big questions. The Pesach night is all about freedom. And freedom is based on asking questions. If you're not given the ability to ask questions, you're in the wrong place. If you feel like you're muzzled, you're in the wrong place. If you feel like you're silenced, you're not free. In the Christian dogma, they have a rule. Those who ask questions, those who believe don't ask questions, and those who ask questions don't believe. That's a rule in Christianity. You're not allowed to ask questions. They're slaves. Judaism, on the night of our greatest expression of faith, we say, ask questions. 
You have faith questions? Ask questions. Ask questions. Because we believe you'll never get to faith if you don't go through it through a, freedom, a process of freedom. Next. I want to just point out one more. I got time for one more. One more. There's a story in the town in, in the Haggadah. Misa Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Tarfon, Shayu Musubim ben Abrak. There's a story about Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, Elazar ben Azariah, Rabbi Kiva, and Rabbi Tarfon. They were sitting in Bnei Brak, and they were speaking over the stories of Yitzchak Mitzrayim all night long, until their students came and said, "It's time to go to Shul for the morning service. It's time to say the morning Shema." What's this story doing here? I think this is an idea that is so relevant to today. Greece is in big trouble. Economically, Greece is in very, very, very big trouble. They've been bailed out again and again and again by the European Central Bank, but they're still in big, big trouble. And one of the reasons they're so much in trouble is because barely anybody pays taxes over there. Only about one-third of the taxes that are owed to the Greek government get paid to the Greek government. Now, in Greek, there's something called fakalaki. That's what it's called. It means a bribe. Shmir. Fakalaki is like an envelope filled with cash. And you give the fakalaki to your local government official, and he turns off the problem. So, therefore, Greece... Greek people don't want to pay taxes. They give envelopes stuffed with cash. And uh, they don't pay taxes. Who doesn't pay taxes? Is it only the criminals? The politicians don't pay taxes. The judges don't pay taxes. Of course the country's in a disastrous route. And they're they're, they're done. When a king has a problem that no one's paying taxes, he says, who's not paying taxes? And if the answer is everyone, what does he first do? He cleans out his top cabinet. He cleans out all the officials who are not paying taxes. And he lets everybody know, these guys, they lost their jobs because they weren't honest. And I'm giving their jobs to honest people. And you better all pay your taxes because these guys, the tax collectors, they're paying their taxes. They're going to force you to pay your taxes. The story of Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah and Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yeshua. These were the greatest rabbis. They knew all the stories. They knew all the Torahs. They could have done an express Seder. As people tell me sometimes sheepishly, you know, our Seder, it's like, we, yeah, we definitely, we, we, we do the express version. When the rabbis of a community are not living ethical lives, when the rabbis of the community are teaching one thing in one side and doing something in the other side, when the schools the children are going to are teaching about Shabbos and kosher as Jewish values, but the people teaching it don't do Shabbos and don't do kosher, Judaism starts to crumble. If 
children see that their parents drop them off at Hebrew school on Sunday morning and then literally skedaddle out of there as fast as they can and go to the Starbucks just down the block to sit and do nothing and schmooze with other parents for two hours. They come back and pick up their kid. How was it? And they don't want to step foot in the, in the synagogue. They don't want to step foot. There's classes. There's adult ed classes. Parents aren't going. When the kids see the parents aren't doing it, they're not going to do it. When we see the rabbis are not living ethical lives, how are we going to live ethical lives? If the children are busy learning about the Seder, but the parents are crashing into the Seder, coming off of work, they're so busy, they never thought about it, they didn't look, they didn't look into it, they didn't learn about it, and the children are coming in, they're excited, they learned about it, but the parents are like, not engaged, because they, they themselves weren't preparing. What kind of Seder is it? In the beginning of the Haggadah, which is a night, the Seder night is a night where we're supposed to teach our children. The mitzvah is, Teach your children about our history. Teach our children about the miracles that God wrought for us in Egypt and who will ring for us again. The beginning you have to recognize, if you're not living that life, you can't teach that life. If you want to be inspired, stick around people who are inspired. And if you want to inspire others, be inspired yourself. The greatest rabbis, they knew all the Dwar Torahs, but their Seder took them until the morning time, until the students came in and said, Rabbis, we got to go. It's time for the morning chakras. It's time for the morning Kriyashma. If you want to inspire others, make sure you're inspired yourself. And if you're not inspired yourself, spend more time around inspirational people. I'm going over, but I'll conclude with this one final thought. I had a conversation with somebody who called me in a consultative uh, milieu and they were dealing with a lack of uh, they just didn't feel like Judaism was speaking to them and when you don't feel like Judaism is speaking to you often you can end up starting asking all kinds of questions well maybe God didn't really do that I don't know, maybe, you know I said to this person I said what's, what's inspiring you about Judaism who are you around who's inspired? And it basically came out that this person was not around inspirational people. I said, you don't have any issue with Judaism. Judaism is awesome. You don't have an issue with the people that you're around. You've got to be around inspired people if you want to be inspired. And if you are inspired, you can inspire others. May God give us all the amazing strength that this year, for our Pesach Seder, which will be, God willing, next Wednesday night, We should be fired up. We should be inspired. We should share that inspiration to our children and grandchildren. They should see how much the Seder means to us. And then it should mean so much to them. They should see how much we're excited to sing the praises of God, to tell over the stories. And they should be excited to engage in that journey with us. May we have a Kusher and a Ziz and a Pesach. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.